Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. Today is the first Sunday in the Advent of Lent, and um, <clears throat> Lent typically, uh, we choose something to give up between now and Easter, between now and Palm Sunday, um, the 40 days between here and Easter, and, and um, if you count from Wednesday, which is the official start, Ash Wednesday, to Easter, it's more than 40 days, but, but the design is that on Sundays, the Lord's Day, are days of celebration. So on Sundays, you break your fast or whatever it is that you were giving up, and you celebrate and find joy in God's goodness and His grace. Um, so I'm super excited to go to eat lunch and have and drown myself in Mountain Dew. Um, very excited about that. Um, you know, the core, the question to the core of all Christian hope is, is really this question. What is the nature of the God I have given my allegiance to? Can I trust him? That's pretty much the bottom line because if, if that's unanswered in your life, in your experience, whether or not you can trust God who you've given your life to, then, then that's, we're in trouble. <laughs> like if I don't know that I can trust him, that's, that's, that's a big question. And, and a lot of that comes from what I experience and, and the difficulties that I face, the, the temptations and the hard things, the, the sufferings, the, the things that go wrong and, and things don't go according to plan. And in Hebrews chapter four, verse 15, the, the, the writer writes this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So one of the things that we can trust is that Jesus knows exactly what we face and what we've experienced, and there's nothing that comes into our life that he has not dealt with, and that he understands us. And here's, here's the thing about this first Sunday in Lent and the thing that I want us all to not miss this morning. And that is this, that Jesus succeeds where we fail. Our hope is built on the foundation that Jesus has succeeded everywhere that we failed. My hope is not anchored in how I navigate this life. My hope is not anchored in how you navigate this life. Our hope is anchored in the fact that Jesus has been successful every time that we fall short and we come up short and that we have failed. Whether it's to stand against temptation or do the right that we ought to do, or just that we've given God something that, that is valuable to us, but isn't even really remotely reflective of his worth and his beauty, and his glory. You see, Israel, when they went to the desert, they took up idols. 
I think that reflects me in a lot of ways. When I'm in a desert place, when I'm in a wilderness, when I'm in a place of, of difficulty, I will go to the kind of idols that I've built up for myself for salvation. Yet Jesus, when he went to the desert, as we'll see in our passage today, Jesus didn't take up idols, but he took up scripture. And Jesus succeeded where Israel failed. Jesus succeeded where I failed. And, and you see, that's not to like deflate the righteous acts or tools that we've been given. Because you see, our righteous activities have no power in and of themselves, but they are a way of entering into communion with Jesus. Jesus, whose faithfulness and righteousness forgives our past and secures our present and future life with God. And so that's where all of our hope is centered on, is, is the person of Jesus Christ in his success in every place and in every way. One of the things we'll, we'll, we'll notice as we go through the passage is that Jesus went out to the wilderness and after he was baptized and there was this kind of Trinitarian moment at the, at the river, Jesus is sent out into the desert, into the wilderness for 40 days. And during those 40 days, Jesus fasted. We've talked a bit about fasting and you got to hear from Candace last week share her testimony about fasting. And, and you know, one of the things that I heard recently that, that I so love and I have finding to be true is a statement about prayer and fasting. And I don't know who said this, but I won't forget what they said. And that was this, that prayer opens the hands of God while fasting binds the hands of the enemy. Let, let that sit for a second. Prayer opens the hands of God, but fasting binds the hands of the enemy. And I think that statement is true, especially looking at the activity and behavior of Jesus as he went into the wilderness to literally, to 40 days of temptation and a culmination of Satan himself coming against him. Jesus was in a spirit of prayer, but he spent those days in fasting because prayer opens the hands of God and fasting binds the hands of the enemy. And I've found that to be true for me and in my life, that when I am in a place of fasting, that the enemy has way less sway over my sometimes feeble mind and reckless heart. And so why would we want to limit ourselves to the disciplines that maybe come easy in pursuing intimacy with Jesus and step into the disciplines that not only open God's hands in our lives, but they bind the hands of the enemy. Luke chapter four is, is our text for this morning. And uh, the, the story of Jesus and his journey in the wilderness is found in Luke chapter four and I, I believe in Matthew chapter three. And um, they're the same stories with some author uh, probably preferences in the story. In Matthew, the, 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 the last two temptations are, are switched, but they're the same temptations. Matthew expands a little bit on what Jesus said and Luke kind of leaves it where it was. But in Matthew chapter four, the first couple of verses, here's what we read. And Jesus 
full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, I feel like this is the most redundant and not, not necessary statement in scripture, and he was hungry. Like, okay, yes, he was probably hungry after 40 days. I'm hungry after three hours. So yes, Jesus was hungry. Some things that we wanna recognize about Jesus' preparation for this time in the wilderness and the context of his time in the wilderness. One, his primary preparation for the wilderness was that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. I think it's, it's, it kind of blows my mind, even that statement that Luke makes, that Jesus went to, the, went to the wilderness and he was full, filled with the Holy Spirit, which the reason it kind of blows my mind is that Jesus is God, as is God the Father God and the Holy Spirit is God. They are one, three in one, yet here in Jesus' earthly ministry, as he was fully human and fully God, that he himself, Holy Spirit God, filled him. <laughs> Which I think is important to recognize because if Jesus fully God and fully man, but fully human required in his earthly ministry, the filling of the Holy Spirit, we need to be every day filled by the Holy Spirit. If there was any fully human that did not need the filling of the Holy Spirit, it would arguably be Jesus. So that just tells me all the more how important it is for us to be full of the Holy Spirit as we execute our, our, our activities and we do things throughout the days and the weeks. But then there's, there's, there's three things that, that we, we don't wanna fail to recognize that are going on during these 40 days. One, it was 40 days of solitude. It was Jesus and the Holy Spirit, God the Father there in the desert. So it was a time of solitude. Secondly, it was a time of fasting. So not only solitude and prayer, but it was a time of fasting. The third thing we tend to, I don't know if we tend to recognize this, and maybe you, you're like, no, I, I knew that, and I, it's obvious, or maybe you're kind of like, wow, I, that, I didn't think of it that way. Oftentimes we think of the 40 days of Jesus' fast culminating in these three temptations from Satan. But actually the entire 40 days were full of temptation. It was 40 days of combat. <laughs> it was 40 days of solitude, fasting, and combat. It didn't let up at any point. It did culminate with this big confrontation between Satan and Jesus. But that's how Jesus prepared and that's how Jesus lived in those 40 days. And then we get to the kind of culmination of those 40 days in the temptation. You know, it's, it's interesting because I think that there's a lens that we need to see these temptations that Satan brings Jesus through in the wilderness. And you can decide if what, I, what I'm about to say is true or not. I think by the witness of scripture, it seems to be pretty accurate. Not trying to fit the temptations in a particular category, but Satan's goal with Jesus' life was to prevent him from suffering. Satan's goal with Jesus' life was to prevent him from suffering. And as we work through 
Luke chapter four, what we'll see is that the temptations that, that Satan tempts Jesus with all are centered on Jesus avoiding or not experiencing suffering whatsoever. Even mild uncomfort. <clears throat> you know, one of the things as we get into these temptations, I think the other thing that we need to notice is these are really, these are, these are deceitful temptations. These are not obvious temptations. Like when we get into them. You know what's interesting? That the, 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 the sin and the temptation we most talk about today, the temptations that we most deal with today are not present when Satan brings the big guns against Jesus in the wilderness. Notice what Satan didn't bring to Jesus. Jesus Satan didn't like say, hey, Jesus, hey, here's a laptop. I've got some websites that you can visit. They've got some attractive, scantily clad Hebrew women. Like Jesus didn't bring, or, uh, Satan didn't bring porn to Jesus. He also at no point asked Jesus to take something that didn't rightly belong to him. He didn't tempt Jesus with stealing or lying. He didn't tempt Jesus with cheating. It's interesting that, that the things that he tempted Jesus with were primarily avoiding suffering, which was the path that God directed Jesus onto obedience. And so following that, I don't know that this is true or not, but I, I, I think we need to think about this pretty seriously. Satan might do anything to keep you and I from suffering. Satan might, because he did everything he could to steer Jesus away from suffering, Satan might do anything he can do to keep you and I from suffering. That might be his master plan. You see, Satan deals with these really creative deceptions if you go back to, to Genesis 1 in the garden, Satan's question to Eve, do you remember what the question was? Did God really say? Which is a great question because he wasn't really saying God didn't say something. He wasn't calling God a liar. He just said, did God really say that you'll die if you eat of that fruit? And Eve was like, I mean, yeah, he said, well, did he mean that? I mean, may, I mean, it does look good. I mean, did he really say that? I mean, he said, he said there's a good way to do things and maybe there's a less great way to do things. I wonder if, I wonder if Satan comes to us and says, did Jesus really say, did Jesus really say that if you follow me, you will experience suffering? I mean, did Jesus really say that? I mean, he said it, but he did, did he say that for us? Because we're in a different context. Like, did he really mean that to follow him, you in, like, specifically, you will experience suffering? Like, did he really say that? 
Like, did Jesus really say that if you want to follow me, you need to, you need to deny yourself and take up your cross? I mean, he said that, but he said it like in, in Greek. And, and did he really like mean from, like, that, that I have to deny all of myself? Like, maybe just deny certain things, bad things that aren't good, so I can follow him. I mean, did Jesus really say that? And I wonder if Satan is, is using that line of questioning for us throughout our lives and that maybe his, his master plan is to keep us from suffering. So the uncomfortable thing that I thought of this week and I was talking with somebody in my office this week and I, and I threw this question out to them and they said, that's a terrible question. But he said, but it seems like it needs to be asked. So I'm wondering if, Jesus, if, if Satan's plan with Jesus' life was to keep him from suffering, and if it's true that Satan might do everything he can to keep you and I from suffering, then the kind of outlier of the American church that has been, had the most freedom and the most religious expression to proclaim the gospel without any recrimination has been free since the establishment of our country. The most free church in pretty much all of world history. Yet we're described as a post-Christian nation. And it's not because the church's freedom has been infringed upon because we were going down that path well before anyone was concerned about the government. Might it be possible that Satan's plan with the church here is to keep it from any suffering whatsoever so that we fall asleep and we live in the freedom that we have but don't actually go out and proclaim the gospel and the spirit and the character of Jesus to all those who we meet? Is it possible that when we say in suffering, God, where are you in this? That actually in my suffering, it just means Satan's not winning. And so as we see Satan attacked Jesus, it is to keep him from suffering. Verse three, in Luke chapter four, says, the devil said to Jesus, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. So basically, you're 40 days into a fast, and the temptation doesn't feel that diabolical, does it? Jesus, if you're the son of God, turn this stone to bread. Jesus did this later, except it wasn't even stone to bread. He made bread out of thin air. Like there's a few loaves and some fish and Jesus multiplied them. So it's fully with it. And, and did Jesus sin when he turned loaves to, to a multiple of loaves? Uh, no, he didn't. So turning stone to bread or causing bread to multiply, that's not a sin inherently. So what's the problem here? 
Jesus had legitimate human physical needs of food. See, what Satan was doing was he was saying, you know what, you should have what you need or what you want, when you want, or when you need it. You shouldn't have to be hungry. In fact, why are you even fasting? You're, you're, you, if you are the Christ, if you are the Son of God, why are you fasting? Because you are God. Why would you fast on your own behalf? Like later, Jesus says in, the, in his ministry, when the Pharisees are saying, why aren't your disciples fasting? He says, well, you don't fast when the bridegroom's here. Jesus, you're the bridegroom. Why are you fasting? You shouldn't have to be hungry. And you know, your people shouldn't have to be hungry. They should have what they want when they need it and, and when they want it. And you see, the temptation was a temptation for control, particularly fleshly control. What my flesh needs, it should have now. Yet Jesus responded and said, you know, it's not bread alone that drives my behavior. It's not my flesh that is the, in the driver's seat of control in my life. And in Matthew, he, he's, he's quoted saying, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, I'm not in control of my life. God is in control of my life. And then we can understand for us that we are not the ones who, who need to have control of our lives, but we need to make sure Jesus has control of our lives and we need to give that control over. And so Jesus responds by saying, no, 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 no. <laughs> that's not how it works, Satan. So then Satan moves on. In verse, in verse five, it says, and the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. That's a, that's a fascinating statement, isn't it? That he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in, in, in a moment of time. So, so Jesus saw all of the, the, the kingdoms that came before him and his earthly ministry, and he saw all the kingdoms that came after his earthly ministry. He, he, saw, he saw Russia today. He saw America today. So it says, he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If then you will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So basically what, what, what Satan was saying in worship me was this. He was saying, Jesus, you should get what you deserve and what you were promised without the suffering. Because here's, here's, the, here's the argument Satan was making. He was saying, Jesus, all the kings of the world, they all, I have authority over them. But you and I both know that God has promised that they belong to you. They're going to be yours. But the problem with getting them and the path that God has designed and laid out for you is that you're gonna have to go to the cross. You're gonna face relational betrayal. You're gonna face abandonment. You're gonna face excruciating physical pain and you're gonna be crucified as, as a criminal, guilty and shameful on a cross. But here's the deal. All this stuff, all these kingdoms, I have authority over them. And I can give them to you right now and you won't have to go to the cross and they'll all be yours. 
Now, that temptation is a temptation for comfort. Inheritance without participation in suffering. See, and I think Satan does that with us now, is that, that temptation of comfort to say, hey, God, you are a child of God, and you, God has promised you an inheritance. But you know what? I think God wants you to receive all that inheritance without sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Because Christ already suffered. Why would you need to share in the sufferings of Christ? That just seems silly. You know what's interesting about that conversation with Jesus and, and Satan there? When Satan said, I will give you the authority over and the glory of all of these nations, Jesus at no point argued with him and said, you don't have the right to do that. You know why he didn't argue with him? Because all of those nations belonged to him. He had authority over them. They were separated from God. They were sinful, rebellious, and they were owned by the devil. And Satan rightly said, I can give these nations to anyone I want. And so Jesus, if you just worship me, I will give you the authority and the power over all these nations and you don't even have to carry your cross. But here's a question, and I don't know if it's ever crossed your mind. Why would Satan give up the authority over all the nations? Why would he do that? I think it's because Satan knew without a doubt that Jesus was gonna get this. But if he could get Jesus to worship him, he would win. Philippians 2, verse eight, Paul writes this. He says, in being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee and every nation should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. You see, Satan knew that ultimate tribute is not to rule in authority over something, but to be admired and treasured and worshiped above all things. You see, somebody can rule over something, but it doesn't mean that they have the people's hearts, right? You can have authority. You can have authority because you have a job or a title or a position, and you can have authority. You can have authority as a parent. It doesn't mean that those that you have authority over have your heart. They only do what you say because they have to. Satan knew that. See, worship is so much better than authority or power. Because worship means you have the mind and the hearts of those that are worshiping you. And so Satan knew that while ruling and ownership are glorious, to be worshiped is the ultimate glory. And so if Jesus worshiped Satan, he could have all the authority over all the nations. But Satan then had Jesus' heart. And I think that's, that's the incredibly destructive thing in this temptation that Satan gives Jesus is that he's basically vying for his heart. 
Because I, and I think we so easily give our hearts to so many things. We don't call it worship, but it is. So Jesus says, worship God alone and serve him only. The third temptation. Verse nine. And then he took Jesus to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it is written in the Bible, he will command his angels concerning to guard you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So basically what, what Satan essentially says is you should be able to act independently of God doing things the way you want to do them to get things done. You should be able, and you know, yeah, absolutely. I should be able to act independently. I know what God says, but I should be able to make my decisions of how to get things done. And if it's jumping off of a high place or if it's taking a risk, God should take care of me. He should protect me. And that's what Satan says to him. And, and really, it was a temptation for convenience. Jesus, there's a better way. There's an easier way. There's a more convenient way to get this stuff done. Using people is not the most convenient way to get your message out. Do something spectacular. And, 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 so, and so it's interesting because... It is so easy, easy for me to do a good thing in a way that God has not told me to do it. That's actually falling to that temptation of convenience that Satan tempted Jesus with. And I think to myself, how many good things have I done in a way other than God's called me to do it and I get nothing for it from him, even though I did the good thing? Jesus says, don't test God. His way is the better way, no matter how you look at it. But does it strike you, does it stick out to you that all of the temptations that Satan comes at Jesus with are temptations for Jesus to avoid the suffering that God called him to live through? All of them. Making stone to bread, I don't want to suffer hunger. I don't want my flesh to, to suffer at all. So if I have the power, I should make this happen. The temptation to, to, to worship Satan for all of, all of what he's owed. To say, man, I, I should be able to live life because I follow Jesus and not have to suffer. I should be able to, to skate through that. Or, or to throw himself off the temple, the inconvenience of, of doing the hard things God calls us to do. I shouldn't have, I have a better way. I have a way that's smoother for me to accomplish this stuff in life. I don't need to love people who are lost and rebelling against God. Maybe it's easier to pass laws to make them obey those things. It's not wrong. But I don't know that's the way Jesus called us to do it. And so here's the, here's the devastating deception behind these temptations. They are not 
obvious. <laughs> because every one of these things Satan asks Jesus to do, I can justify in a, in, a, in a way that makes me feel like I'm not sinning. Now, maybe I'm just better at justifying sin than you are, but I can do it pretty easily. It doesn't take much time for me to say, you know what? The whole stone to bread, I can, I can find a workaround. The whole thing of, 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 I'll just set a trap for Satan and I'll, I'll get his authority away from the kingdoms, but then I'll be like, just kidding, I'm not gonna worship you. <laughs> I don't know, that might not work. <laughs> but I can find a way to justify all of those things and it looked pretty good on my behalf. I think the temptation for control and comfort and convenience are kind of the big league of temptation that Satan throws at us. And by, by saying that, like, I mean like the big league of temptation, it's, it's that thing that he comes at us with when we are strong and righteous and at peace and living full of the spirit, that's when he brings those things at us. See, Jesus was full of the Spirit those 40 days and he was being tempted every day, but it wasn't until the very end that Satan brought out the big guns. And he said, okay, Jesus, you've, you've gone 40 days of combat without failing. Would you like to turn that stone to bread? And he brings out the big guns of, of control and comfort and convenience. But here's the awesome, awesome news of this passage. You and I fail in every way to be tempted. <laughs> At least I do. But here's the thing, my hope, your hope is not anchored in whether or not you or I have successfully made it through temptation. Our hope is anchored in Jesus who has successfully made it through temptation. You see, Jesus succeeds where I fail. Jesus succeeds where you fail and your failure is no longer accredited to you, but Jesus' success is now on your behalf. And so no matter how short you fall, no matter how unworthy your life is for Jesus Christ, no matter what temptations you have failed, Jesus is successful in all of those things. That's where our hope is. That's the good news. Don't ever forget that there is always more grace in God than sin in me. There's always more grace in God than sin in me. And that statement will never change. See, Lent is about turning away from our sins and toward the living God. And like Jesus, we have to be prepared for temptation if we're going to be successful. Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit and he regularly prepared in prayer and fasting and solitude. He was never like taken out of the conflict, but he was there during those times as he was seeking his father. And we're called to be this, do the same thing. When we find ourselves trapped by the idols of control and comfort and convenience, it is only Jesus who is able to save and restore us because see, our restoration is possible but it is painful because removing claws is always painful. So over the last week, God has been just moving and working in me and, and it's, it's been pretty, pretty amazing in this area of repentance. Since the beginning of the week to this point in the week, 
I firmly believe that repentance is a act of worship that I have not participated in very much in my life. I believe that repentance is a primary pathway of worship that God desires from his people. And again, repentance is not a sad thing. It is a recognition of the fact that even the bad things I do and even the good things I offer to God are not sufficient for his glory or his worthiness. But repentance recognizes that and also receives what Jesus has done to make it enough. When I was six years old, before Christmas, I wanted to get my parents gifts. And I didn't have a car or a driver's license, and we lived in the country. So knowing that my dad takes the garbage out every week, I assumed he loves the garbage. And so I found in the pantry of our kitchen an unopened box of glad garbage bags. I took them, I wrapped them, and put them under the tree. <laughs> On Christmas morning, my dad opened his gift from me that my parents were like, where did this come from? And as soon as my dad opened it, my mom literally said, I knew I bought those. <laughs> but you know what my, my dad said? Thank you for this gift. I gave my dad something I didn't buy and was not worthy of him. But because of his love and grace, he accepted it. We give God things that we don't, that didn't come from us, that we didn't buy. We give him things that aren't even worthy of him. And he looks at us and says, I love you. My favor is upon you. And you're enough. That's living in the worship of repentance. So as we close this morning, I don't want to force anything, but I do want to just take 30 seconds to give us the opportunity to respond to what the Holy Spirit may be doing in you in this moment. Because let's be honest, it doesn't take more than 30 seconds for us to obey the Holy Spirit or disobey him. <laughs> and so maybe, I don't know if this morning the Holy Spirit is moving you to a place of repentance. Maybe it's for things you've done. Maybe it's things that you haven't done. Maybe it's that you just think you've given enough to your life to Jesus and that's enough and it's worthy. And he's saying, no, 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 no. I want all of your life. And that's still not enough. But because you're in Christ, you are enough. Maybe we need to step into repentance in this moment. Maybe the Holy Spirit is moving you in this moment to come forward or maybe talk to the person next to you and say, I need to tell you something about what God's doing in me right now. Maybe it's something you've done or didn't do or you need to do. But I don't wanna let this moment pass without giving that, that opportunity. So I'm just gonna take the next 30 seconds of silence and maybe that means you are compelled by the Spirit to come forward. Maybe it means where you are, you're gonna pray. Maybe it means you're gonna grab someone and say, I need to talk because I need to share something with you. 
my only thing in this moment is that if people do, moved by the Holy Spirit, maybe come forward or something, don't let them be alone. And so I'm just gonna take the next 30 seconds and then I'm gonna pray, unless God does something different. Father, we so, I so desperately want your spirit to move in me and around me. And God, I know that it's not going to be a song we sing or a message that's preached that causes the Holy Spirit to move. God, you make it clear that it is our repentance that is the catalyst to the Spirit's movement. And so I do pray that you would help us to step into repentance as individuals and corporately, that we would be more concerned about what you think than what each other thinks. God, I pray this morning that we would be able to see repentance in the light of your grace and your mercy and your love. God, that the more time I spend recognizing the devastation of my sin and my own unworthiness, my not enoughness, the more joy I find in your grace and your mercy and your love. And so, Father, I pray this morning that we would choose to be conduits of your movement. That we would worship you in the ways that we've been taught, but also worship you in repentance. That we would sit in that place. And that we would be a place that the Spirit can move through. So God, I thank you. Jesus, I thank you that you have succeeded where I fail. God, I thank you that you have more grace all the time than I have sin. So God, help us to go out and to be who you've called us to be in the world around us. God, not clinging to comfort or convenience or control, but going out and walking the path that you've set before us, participating in the joy and the suffering that you did, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint.